Ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined by the the founder of the School of Self-Awareness and former mixed martial arts coach, UFC coach, Joshua Fabia. How you doing, Joshua? Great, great. How are you? Good. Not too bad, man. You know, just hanging in there. Um, tough times, but you got to keep barreling through, you know? You got to do what you got to do, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so the reason for my, the reason I reached out to you initially was there's a lot of things that happened, right? A lot of things happened in the past and more so than any of that stuff, I feel like a lot of people never got the chance to hear your side of the story, who you are, what you are, what you do, why you do the things that you do. And, you know, when you look up Joshua Fabia, for the most part, you know, on YouTube, whatever, things like that, it's more so slander. It's like bad mouth about you. It's negative things. So I kind of just wanted to talk to you and get to know you and get to clear the air and, you know, have people realize that, you know, this is a human being. This is a person who has ideals and has reasons for doing what he does. So. Yeah, thank you. I uh, appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Not very many people can see that after all that uh, negative that's put out there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, what do you do in terms of the School of Self-Awareness? Can you talk a little bit about that, what your role is in that? Yeah, what, what School of Self-Awareness is, is basically a way of dealing with anxiety and depression through self-awareness. And in that exploration, the byproducts just happen to be fitness, health, and survival. Because to build your confidence and to deal with the anxiety that the world can give you, you will need to invest in yourself. And in doing that, that alleviates the depression and the other effects that the negative world can put upon you. You know, we all kind of go through different stuff and through dealing with ourselves, we come to the answers that we need. And so it's pretty fundamental. Uh, We start with breathing because you can't do anything without breathing. And that starts to alleviate the pressure because there's a lot of pressure on us from the time we're born. Um, you know, most of us don't know who we are because we've just been being who we have to be for other people. So addressing that through breath penetrates deep inside of us, essentially to your being. And, uh, that's different than the human you've become. The being you are is, is your essence. It's what you came into this world with. And through exploration of breathing, we get into moving because that's the second thing you do in life. And after you start moving, you can feel the physical hiccups in your body. You can feel the anxiety effects. You might want to do something, but your body can't do it. Well, we start to use breath to alleviate that hiccup and give you some more confidence to try to move more. And this is where the the fitness and the byproduct of all the physical movements really come in. And from there, we pretty much got to heal some things because you've been living. And that's where the self-care comes in, where you, you know, you learn how to give yourself massage so that you're not dependent on someone else touching you. And by learning how to touch yourself correctly, 
you learn how to touch others. And from there, now we start to train and develop in a direction that is beneficial for our needs at the moment. You know, uh, when I was being a UFC coach, it was all that in a specific direction for a UFC fighter and his physical goals and demands of, of needs at that time. Each individual is different. And so school of self-awareness deals with you and allows you to have what you need to have success. And that's through dealing with all that anxiety and depression that may have built up and maybe made it a little hard to participate in the world. And that's, that's it in a nutshell. So how did, how did the whole, cause you obviously have some credential background in combat, right? How did that, how does that sort of tie into the fold? Well, <clears throat> I spent time in the service and I spent time as a private military contractor. And what happens here is you end up dealing with high levels of anxiety. You, you end up dealing with extreme pressure and fear. And how do you deal with that? So my experience dealing with that uh, gives me a unique understanding at an extreme that most people hopefully never have to understand to that level. So if you can control yourself under a life-threatening situation or control yourself when other people's lives are on the line, you get to a depth of what I'm talking about. The only thing you can do in these moments is breathe. And you start to feel how each breath has an effect. And you can study this, you know, as a normal person, just hold your breath and start to do some work. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll notice that you'll fall apart pretty quick. Well, most of us in life, we're holding our breaths at different moments. And so if you can learn how to not hold your breath, whether it's extreme fear and anxiety to just daily movement, you're going to alleviate your blood pressure. And this is going to give you a higher ability to control yourself and give you a higher level of physical success. So my experience working in the field like that is a lot different than just training in a gym and maybe dealing with the uh, nerves and jitters before a fight, for example. It's, it's quite a bit different. And if you can master that, you'll build true confidence. And you won't doubt yourself in the moments when you're needed to execute the movements that you need to do. And this could be just from steering out of the way of traffic to catching a glass when it's falling off the table. If you hold your breath, even for a split second, there's lack of oxygen going to your brain. And so you're making a decision 
but it's an incoherent decision. You don't have enough oxygen to make a good decision. You're going off of motor and muscle reflex. And so, so a lot of times you can see this, for example, with um, fighters, you can see very rigid, jagged, erratic movement. Well, that means that they're holding their breath. And you can hear it. <laughs> that hiccup in the breath is bringing the body to a point of stacking and stacking less oxygen to do the task. And over time, now the person is <sighs> over-breathing to make up for it. What School of Self is studying is to minimize that from happening by becoming aware of when fear comes into the body, start relieving the pressure by allowing oxygen to freely flow in and out of your body so that oxygen can penetrate to the areas of the body that are getting stiff and you're losing control of them. You might be able to flex really hard but you might lose your accuracy. So that's, that's how it applies in that sense. And it applies to every living person. And so you never hear an animal hold its breath. It's natural to not hold your breath. But in our society, in the world, people have become ashamed of breathing and it hasn't been as big of a subject to study. So people's awareness really aren't, isn't on it. And if you're not aware of something, it'll get you. So in like a so, high leverage moment, high, le like obviously a UFC fight is obviously one of the most high anxiety moments a human could ever possibly endure, right? It's obviously up there with anything in the world right now. Yours, your thing is something that transcends that. It's something that you could apply to life. Anybody, anything, any high anxiety, high stakes situation. And a lot of times people you're saying get overwhelmed by the frazz and the frills of it, right? Like if it's a UFC pay-per-view, the media, this, that, and the other. You're teaching people the fun, the core fundamentals, right? To just stay centered almost. Correct. Correct. So, you know, think about it like this. <clears throat> you hear about meditation, and you see people sit quietly in a room. My job is to teach you how to have a living meditation. That that stillness and calmness is with you all the time. And the way that we do that is we program it into the body on a very deep level by making every movement you do full with connective breath. What does that mean? That means that if I move my arm at any time I move my arm, oxygen is allowed to flow into my body. I'm not closing the valve and then continuing to move my arm. So what's happening is my arm is full of that oxygen. And this is what keeps every part of your body alive. A lot of people have stale and stagnant areas of their body because the oxygen is not getting to there. And this is where a lot of our health issues come from. 
let's say somebody has um, anything to do with the center to the bo- center of the body, any of your organs. Well, that person is breathing shallow, and the oxygen is not getting to the organs enough to flush and circulate everything. Do you think so? The area is a little stale. Right. Right. Absolutely. Do you think that's hard to cut you off? Do you think that something that I'm wondering now, do you think that that's the most important element to a peak performance in any scenario like that, whether it be sports or a life threatening situation? Absolutely. What, what's typically happening is the center of our body is the most important, but you have these muscles all around it. And when you start to feel fear or anxiety, you'll notice that your stomach gets tight. And what you're doing is you're contracting the muscles around the organs and the organs are not allowed to move and function freely. And you're going to make decisions. You're going to do things, but that's maybe not who you really are. Who you are is kind of like when you watch a baby breathe and you'll see the stomach rise and you can see the organs move. You haven't been that relaxed since you were a baby. You're not corrupted is what you're trying to say by the world. Well, yeah, just not even just corrupted, just feeling the tension and anxiety that living in, in society can do to you. It's as simple as this. You, you think of it as the combat sense because that's a, it's a beautiful extreme and we can see it. But think about the first time you were called up to read in front of the class. You kind of felt something in your stomach. You felt a tension. You didn't just jump up out of your chair and run up to the front of the classroom. Your body functioned a little less than you maybe can just to get up there and all you were going to do is read out loud. Is this something you felt when you were a kid? Like how early did you start, you know, clinging to these ideals, like studying them? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that example is a perfect example for myself because I'm dyslexic and I had an anxiety of of reading out loud. I had an anxiety of feeling I'm incorrect in a public situation, right? So there would be a hesitation. My body is telling me, don't go up there. And the body might shut down a little bit. You know, you get moments in your life where you're so scared, your body will go into paralysis. And why would the body do this? Well, the body does this because in the fear moment, you're probably not capable to go deal with that. So somehow your body's more aware than your brain. And everybody could be telling you to go, I don't know, jump off the roof into the pool. Right. And you see the one person drunk enough they just go and they jump. 
or crazy enough because they the effects of the cheering them on make them go. And then you have another person, they can't even get off the couch. They're crippled. Well, that person, their body's telling them, you're probably not even capable to jump into the pool. You're going to hit the cement. And these are the signals of the body kind of warning you, trying to intuitively tell you things. But by the time you get 10 years old, you, you've perpetuated usually overriding those feelings and sensations. And you, you kind of don't want to be aware of them so that you can maybe have that movie moment and be cool in front of people. Right. (laughs) But everybody's felt it in their own way. It could be running across the street when cars are coming and you feel your body hesitate. That's probably because you picked the wrong moment to go and your body knows you're not capable. Stay here, stay alive. But this is what happens. Sometimes we get ourselves in the situations. Now you're a professional fighter. You can't back away, can you? So now we got to pick the right moment to go. We got to neutralize that hiccup. So now we don't go out there and have our timing off. And now we're just either running in the strikes or not capable to do what we can do. So it, everybody has felt what I'm talking about in some way or another. You need to think about when you felt it. So let's ask you that. When was a time in your life you felt your body get tense and tell you not to do something? Yeah, I mean, anytime you're you're young, like you said, you got to go speak in front of the class. Uh, you know, when you got you know when you're in the class, you're young. You got to read out the paper in front of the class that you just did the night before. It's like a two page paper. Your legs are shaking. You know, situations like that for sure. Obviously, when you're young, you're in sports moments. Maybe a basketball game, fourth quarter, you get tensed up. Right, right. So <clears throat> what that is is levels of invisible pressure. And as we get older, you might not want to go do some of the things in life because you're still feeling those pressures. Let me ask you this then. So based on the way you talk, this is obviously something that a lot of people have no concept of or they're just unable to pick it up, whatever the case may be, because most people we could we could agree that. They're not like this, right? In most situations, they're going to tense up. They're not going to breathe. They're not going to do the things that you, that you, that you pretty much promote so much, right? So my question yep. to you is, does that play into why there's such a misunderstanding on your behalf from fans, whether MMA fans or the general public? Does that explain why so, there's such a, like, maybe a clash between you and, like, fans or people that maybe don't like you or don't understand you? Does that have anything to do with that, that it's you're promoting things that maybe they've been incapable of or they never thought was possible to do throughout their lives. That's possible, but I haven't gotten a chance to speak on it very much. So I doubt that it's really that. I mean, there's definitely people that are upset that I can do things like stand on a ball or carry a stool, ice and give counsel. But I think most of the hate um, has been, you know, conditioned and set up that way 
with the way that the media presented me because yeah, I mean, to the MMA world, it's a little threatening to have somebody that's not from their world in there at all. And to be in there at the level that I was, it's going to upset some people and they're going to want to look at the things that they want to look at, which is punching and kicking, right? <laughs> that's what they want to want me to talk about. That's what they want me to, I don't know, maybe elaborate on, but I don't care about the punching and kicking so much because if you can't breathe right, it's a moot point, man. You're not going to be able to execute the punching and kicking whether you want to or not. So when you were, but when you were coaching MMA, what was there a balance? Mm -hmm. How much of it was what you preach versus the actual things you have to do in the octagon? Did you actually like, what was it? Was there like a percentage? Like how much did you actually work on like the fundamentals, kick punching, you know, kickboxing, wrestling, whatever you have to do as opposed to the breathing things like that. What was the balance there? Well, see, this is where, <clears throat> again, it gets, it gets misunderstood you pretty much in your mindset, right? Like the way that you're speaking, you're separating everything. So I don't separate anything. It's all combined. So I'll give you a rundown of what a, a session for a fighter was like. You would have to come in and reset the breathing pattern so we'd start with purge breathing, which is basically clearing out all the CO2 out of your lungs. All the crap from outside and, the gym pretty much, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, you could say it like that, but the CO2, the, the carbon dioxide okay. that's built up in your lungs, that's minimizing the amount of actual oxygen allowed to get into your lungs and spread through your body. So let's say you've just been functioning. You probably got 20 to 30% CO2 stored in your lungs. So I need to clear that out so that I at least got 80 to 90% of the lung capacity available. Okay. That's, that's the beginning. Why would this be important? Because I need to get results now, now, not tomorrow, not in a week today in five more minutes. So going through some very basic breathing, we clear that out and then doing some breath holds. We work on getting in touch with that fear space and kind of having a moment to study it inside yourself has nothing to do with the external it's internal because everybody feels fear and anxiety differently. And like an alarm is going to go off in your body and you need to know and recognize that feeling. Why? Because it's going to come up here in about 35, 40 minutes when I push you physically to that same space. And I don't need you to have the hiccup. And if you do, I need you to recognize it was just you. Okay. So we get done with the breathing. We now do some warm up. We do dynamic warm up, which is warming up the whole body. Um, and this is 
a series of movements specific to what we're doing that day, whatever style of training. And, um, and we do rolls. We do a hundred rolls a day. Okay. Listen to what I just said. A hundred rolls. So you do a hundred rolls. I've drawn blood and oxygen down your spine with the rolling centrifugal force and pressure. The movements that I'm having you do with coordinated breath is getting the oxygen deep inside the joints and to the specific areas that we're going to be extremely dealing with today. Now we move on to the actual skills training. Let's say it's striking. You're not going to stand and just hit a bag. You're not going to hit the mitts. You're going to have to do footwork in coordination with breathing again. And now I step-by-step stack in the striking. So there's no way for your body to separate it. By 35 minutes in, this movement is now getting programmed deep inside the body within a breath pattern, a movement pattern, and you're getting psychological and combative understanding of the tactical use and practicality of it. Now I apply that work in function. Now you're going to work with a partner or we're going to drill together or we're going to put it into play. And then from there, depending on whatever the training was for the day, right? Because some days it's grappling. Some days it's, it's a, it might be as specific as working on a throw or this or footwork to a kick or footwork in defense, whatever that is, that's a semantic. Then the recipe is now bringing the blood pressure back to the center of the body. And this is where the physical therapy then happens because I'm aware of whatever you've hurt in training or wherever the blood is trapped. Let's say we were doing a lot of footwork, a lot of uh, bouncing. Well, the blood is in your calves. The blood is trapped in your legs. We need to get that blood and oxygen back into your organs. So a lot of the imagery and footage, you saw me stepping on people. Well, that stepping on people is a therapy of decompression. The body has pressure in it. I'm depressurizing that area. And through breathing, exhaling when I put pressure on it, we're conditioning the body to understand physical impact. So when you take a strike, you exhale and the strike dissipates and the energy moves through you versus being stuck on you or in the surface. And uh, from there, as I'm doing the decompression, I'm also giving psychological training. And this is where I'm building the person's self-esteem and understanding and recapping with them everything we just went over. So I know their body knows it because I just ran them through it. 
Now I need to know if they cerebrally understand what we're doing, where and why we're doing it, and how it applies to the game plan for the strategy. That's it. That would be a session. And how long do those run for? Because it seems like there's a lot of preparation before you even start really moving, right? No, I mean, all of it is applicable. You're going to breathe in the fight, right? That's applicable. You're going to do the movements that I'm teaching you, whether you see them as a, look, you think a push-up is a push-up. A push-up is a punch. If, if you don't have the alignment of your arm correctly to push your body weight up, your strike is very weak. So you can see where I don't have wasted movements. They apply in another part. You're separating it in your head. If I was running you through it, you would definitely see like, oh my God, we didn't waste a second. It all applies. It all is going to be in there at that moment. And what it's doing is it's enriching it. So yeah, we have a session for 90 minutes. You have a fight for 15 to 25. Gotcha. So let me ask you this. It's something I don't think I've ever heard anybody ask you. So this is obviously a very different routine from a standard like mixed martial arts training session, right? You would agree to that? Mm-hmm. So, oh, absolutely. Right. So is there anybody, is there any mentors you had early on? Is there anybody that taught you this kind of stuff specifically? Like where did you learn this kind of stuff? Is this something you cultivated yourself? Well, I trained all around the world. Um, the biggest thing is that when you step out of your comfort zone and work with other people around the world, um, I was trained by Russians and Israelis in combat. And um, you gotta understand that Russia is the largest country in the world. They attack and defend and have had the largest border touching the most diversity. Okay, that's one. Then I'm U.S. trained, which is pretty much an attack-based system. And then Israeli is defense, highest level of defense system in the world. So when you take information from these three places in the world, you'll kind of see what one place is missing and what another one has hyper-development. And when you've dealt with as many people as I have, you start seeing a consensus of the same issues over and over again. What I see is that in martial arts, anybody can hurt anybody. Everybody is vulnerable, okay? But if you can't control your body, you can't do any of it. And if breathing isn't understood, you don't have a chance. In Russia, they have a very deep study of breathing. And it comes from the Russian Orthodox monks and understanding breath to, through spirituality. No different than Asian monks no different than the Hindus in India. 
so then you start seeing that this is something that's pretty big everywhere in the world, even with the shamans in the Amazon. Well, you know where it's missing? Here in the West. Completely. So breathing becomes fundamental for me when that's how I've seen people survive and have the most highest probability of success controlling their bodies in extreme weather and conditions around the world. Breathing has been the common denominator. It just happens to be the same common denominator we all have in common. We all have to breathe. Some of us breathe better than others. And that's it. So that's a huge fundamental part of why I use breathing as such a big part of it because you can't avoid it. And if I skip it and show you cool moves and don't give you a way to do it, well, now I'm just an asshole showing off. So my job is to get you to be able to do something in the next five minutes and have a higher level success at it that you build confidence, that you believe in yourself and that you can do it when the moment comes. That's very different than going to the dojo and um, grabbing somebody and just running through a bunch of techniques and then wrestling live, grappling live for a few minutes. And the guy who's been there longer has already been breathing, but we haven't talked about it, is now just beating everybody up. Nobody's getting any better because of that. Uh, psychologically and emotionally. A top tier of the room who's beating up the other people, they're getting better, uh, but only for a period of time. They kind of plateau. And the other people who don't want to challenge them because they don't have the skill ability yet or they can't keep up because they can't breathe correctly, they're going to submit. They're going to give up. So now the guy who needs the training isn't able to get the higher level training he needs. Does that make sense? The other people in the room can't help push yeah. them. Right. So when I go to uh, most MMA schools and gyms, what I see is classes. And um, the class dynamic is great, but everybody's coming in at a different level. And not everybody knows how to train correctly. Somebody that is good and wants to get their training, they can get it with a white belt because they'll bring their level down, work on a different skill and not worry about competition and showing off and abusing somebody. But typically I don't see that. Right, Maybe two, three guys in the gym can do that. But the other 20% that want to be the cool badasses in the gym, they're being monsters to white belts, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's where now you got a guy that's a white belt. He don't want to stick it out. He's been abused and he paid to be abused. His self-esteem is even worse. And now he's out in the street and, and he's, he's not the person he should be. 
Right. Then you get another guy in the room who's been given the blessing to abuse people. And he's a monster or she's a monster. And that's not who they are or who they should be. So, so that's what, what my style is different is I'm not, I'm not running anything off of making money, selling uniforms. I don't, I don't make you pay. You can either do it or you can't. So you obviously There's have no your own. belts in my world. Absolutely. Yeah. I hear you. So you obviously have your own thing. You're, you have your own niche in what you do. Is there anything that, is there any misperception out there from the MMA community that you just feel is flat out wrong or anyone that bothers you most specifically that just isn't true about how you teach and how you do, how you go about your business? Yeah, I mean, I guess <clears throat> the biggest one would be they're so used to people showing off. They're upset I didn't show myself showing off on anybody. I mean, you can't go to the gyms and play with the guys that I'm playing with if I didn't know what I was doing. If I didn't have my own martial arts skills. It's easy to gut check somebody. It's easy to put somebody down and put out that video. You understand what I'm saying to you? Mm -hmm. But I don't put out any of that video. So now you think I'm soft. Right. Cause I'm, I'm soft cause, cause I'm showing all the nice and soft stuff, but how come I'm playing with the tough guys <laughs> and the tough guys aren't saying, Man, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Nobody at the UFCPI ever said I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, just imagine that. I got over 100 hours in there. I can go to any gym in the world, and in five minutes, I'll earn your respect. But I don't come in with a black belt making you give me respect or using fear so you're scared of me. No, it's another another way. Is I give love and respect, and and in return, I receive love and respect. There's no need for me to beat up a bunch of house dads. Like, this is where it's all, like, ridiculous. If you want to be a tough guy, how come you're not fighting for your family? How come you're not fighting for your country? How come you're not fighting for anything right? So when I'm dealing with the market, which you're, you're not, I'm not dealing with them, but you're talking about the martial art world or the mixed martial art world. The majority of people in this space are insecure people that need the stuff that I actually teach. They don't need me to hurt them. And this is where it gets misunderstood. You know, yeah. I don't, that's, that's why when you, you were dealing with the social media world of showing extremes, people love to see people get hurt. Go look at the videos of fails, people that are permanently damaged the rest of their life because their asshole friends were cheering them on. And now they did a head dive with a skateboard into the stairs, but you don't see any videos of them after that. People only see what so, they want you to see, right? Yeah, but, but what's happening is the glorification of people being hurt and abused. 
you watch UFC clips, you don't get to see a bunch of clips of people showing masterful defense or this or that. You get to see people hurt. These are the clips that everybody's sharing and showing. You want to see Weidman's leg broken. You want to see McGregor's leg broken. You want to see uh, Alistair's lip ripped in half. You want to see Perry's nose on sideways. You want to see Diego's face all chewed up. Well, isn't that just like the dog fights? Right, right. So what's, what's happening is I have a lot more humanity than the industry space that is misunderstanding me. Is that why there was such a big clash between you and the UFC in your time there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see that I use a language talking about being a human being. And the next thing you know, you got Dana White and everybody else saying human being. Because they knew there was no human being language or treating anybody like a human being. You know, everybody can say what they want to say, but I affected that area enough that a lot of things changed just by me being there and caring for a fighter more than just punches and kick training. Just caring about his well-being, his health, and these other concerns brought up a lot of stuff in the whole industry. So you, know, you got... Spencer Fisher, who is permanently damaged from being a fighter, the concern only comes out after. After there's an article written, he's been messed up like that for 10 years. So Nobody cared till after they hear an article. I'm over here caring before the fighter leaves the organization. It becomes a problem. So it feels like defense is something you certainly preach a lot, right? Whether it's maybe not defense specifically, or it's something that just plays hand in hand with what with the movements and the breathing and all that. But is that something that you feel over gets overlooked in your time when you were coaching Diego Sanchez? The fact that he didn't take that much damage as opposed to all the dog fights and wars he'd been in prior. Because when you do look up Joshua Fabia and anything in relation to UFC MMA, it's all just negative stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's negative stuff, but it's also trying to cover up the fact that, yeah, Diego not only didn't get hurt in the time of doing School of Self, but he also took better care of himself outside of the octagon. You didn't see any uh, police scandals. You got John Jones getting arrested, I think, three times in, in, the, in those two years. You didn't, see, <clears throat> you didn't see his brand go down unless they were just slandering it using me as a negative. When he was making better decisions inside and outside the octagon, I don't really see what the problem is. Right. So absolutely... Nobody wants to talk about that a guy from outside of the industry took the longest UFC veteran and, and taught him better defense than he ever had the whole time he was in the UFC and training with the best MMA gym in the world, Jackson Wink. But yet for 10 years there, he was just 
getting hurt. And there are a lot and of like things I, that the UFC has covered up that they don't want you to see, like things like you're giving Maz Vidal tips or before a fight, you're training with Dustin Poirier. Those are things that the UFC, you've made very clear to me, is something that they show you what they want you to see, right? There's There seems to be one oh, side, leaning, a mean, lean, right, is you, what you were... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just look at the notorious human punching bag footage, right? Uh, the footage of Diego hanging upside down. Right. Well, let's let's talk about this for a second. <clears throat> From the very beginning of when I started working with Diego, I started hanging him upside down. And at first, it starts with just hanging decompressing the spine and drawing blood and oxygen to his brain. Did nobody notice that Diego spoke better when he was working with me than he ever has in his whole life? You know, that's something to be said. A fighter that's taken the amount of damage that he has, the second uh, most amount of head strikes in the whole UFC history, he was stuttering, he was sounding punchy, and working with me in just weeks, he can give awesome interviews. So I'm hanging him upside down at Jackson Wink with his daughter, and uh, this is at the end of a session, and this is the very beginning, just hanging him upside down, letting his body relax. UFC team is there recording? No, no, no. This is this is uh, two years ago. So this I'm is, just telling you from the very, very beginning. I've okay. been hanging him upside down for two years. So this is this just is from the I'm very beginning, okay, of what you guys yeah, have been yeah. doing. Okay, I see. Yeah, so, so I start training him, and he, immediately he has brain issues. We need to deal with that. So this is why I'm hanging him upside down. I'm, I'm giving you the reasoning. <clears throat> what are we using to hang upside down? A black belt. So probably the best ways to use your black belt other than getting people to kiss your ass and get respect. So now I got you hanging upside down with a soft piece of fabric very similar to what you might see in yoga. Okay. Now you, you're familiar with this headstand yoga, Hatha yoga. To some extent. Yeah. Right. So what is this about? Hatha yoga is not decompressing the spine because they're putting pressure on the top of the head. Right. But what they are doing is they're trying to draw down the energy from the root of your spine, the root chakra, and bring that energy down your spine, upside down, to your crown, to your head. Okay, so you got thousands and thousands of people doing this every day in a yoga studio. Nobody's thinking anything weird. I'm doing it suspended. Again, does that bother you, Joshua? Does that bother you, Joshua, that in a world where 
this is commonplace where you go to maybe not even certain parts of the world. Maybe you stay within that same country, same state. You go to a yoga place or even further beyond that, right? You go to maybe somewhere, other parts of the world where this is more commonplace. Does it bother you that something like that is so common somewhere else, but you bring that into the MMA world and it gets bashed like nobody's ever seen that before? What the hell is this guy doing? Well, absolutely. But on it doesn't bother me or upset me. It only shows the level of ignorance this uh, group of people really have and how close-minded they are. And that's due to the way that they are trained. You can see their eyes are not open. They got blinders on. They only want to see what they want to see. If I don't speak to you in your language, you don't want to hear me. Okay, well, that's why you feel real secure in your jujitsu gym but there's other places in the world you can't even walk because you don't feel comfortable. This is part of that. So now I came into your world and I'm making you feel uncomfortable. A big part of why a lot of masculine men feel uncomfortable about me is because I'm just as capable and just as damaging to people with kindness with love with healing is that something it's, you would apply at all to the matt sarah incident do you feel that way about him because when you look at that incident again when you were anything joshua fabia is just one-sided you you got oh, one absolutely. side of the story and then you got the other side that is completely blank i'm just trying to fill in some gaps here human punching bag real quick though i'll get i'll get to that so i was hanging him upside down and progressively over the two years from giving him soft strikes with boxing gloves mm -hmm. to the point of what you see in that video. Now, what you see in that video was recorded by the UFC and it was leaked by the UFC. And I showed you the real footage you see Diego's asking me to hit him. So the UFC specifically released a behind-the-scenes footage of their shoot with you guys training Diego? Absolutely. Just to slander me in that moment where they know I'm not going to get another media week or ever get in front of the people again. So this is how they put that taste in everybody's mouth that I'm just so abusive when it's laughable, it was like a movie scene. I mean, I can show you where the UFC producers spraying him down with water. I mean, it's look at the production value of that video and look at what I make. Those are 40, 50, maybe $80,000 cameras on a, on a, on a sliding boom. I mean, it was, um, heavy production. And so they show you that piece out of context. And like I said, 10 seconds before that, Diego's just stretching. And I'm helping him stretch. They're loving the footage. And then Diego says, Coach, hit me with the stick. Diego said that, that, not you. Diego's yeah. the one who asked you to hit him with the stick. 
Exactly. So but there's nothing they, in those videos of Diego asking you to do it. It's all just you doing not. it, portraying it as if it was your idea. Well, and as if I, well, this is the other part. Come on, people. Everybody's acting like I'm abusing Diego. So you don't want to call me a badass, but somehow you believe that I'm scaring the nightmare so bad that somehow also I can hang him upside down and beat him up. Like, come on, people, don't be stupid. <laughs> come on. I cannot put him up there. He has to get up there by himself. It's like impossible for me to hang him upside down like that. Right. But I, I, I like that the UFC leaks the footage, puts it on a fake YouTuber's account, and then sends it to McGregor, John Jones, and gets them upset so that they get free content out of them talking shit about me. Then all the talking heads like Bisping and, and uh, Schwab and all these people, they fall for it. They fall for it. Nobody ever contacts me and says, hey, what the fuck was that? Right. That's because, something I would definitely again, agree to. That's something I, I can definitely agree with. There's, listen, there's two, no matter how much you may disagree with a guy, whatever the case may be, there's two sides to every story. And the fact that there's literally just one side to this when it comes to you and any, every single scenario and not your side. Well, and nobody will come to me because the UFC is very well aware I record everything. For my legal protection. Mm. If Diego was to get hurt in training, I'm at fault. I have to have it recorded for liability. Everything I do, whether it's training with a real knife or this or that, I'm doing it under the safest conditions possible. That's why nobody gets hurt under my supervision. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that's something that people just have pretty much, I don't know, a lot of people came out and sort of bashed you for the whole knife thing. Is that something you want to talk about specifically, like the safety sure. and all that? This, like, is, you know, what's your take on that? Sure. How is it safe? Well, again, I have the footage of, again, everything's taken out of context. Mm, especially from the UFC, right? Yeah, especially. So that's part of like spinning this, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yet again, Diego only gets better at 37, 38, 39 years old. Dealing with bigger, stronger, faster opponents than he ever has in his career. Let's just keep that shit real. And there are active UFC fighters on the roster participating in this this practice with you, so it's not something that just Diego thinks is good or works. Absolutely. But I explain in the beginning of the training that... Your understanding of fear, you've overloaded your system and you're denying the fear. So what does this mean? This means that you don't respect my punch and you walk into it. I see. You, you need to learn how to move out of the way. Okay? Move out that's, of the way like your life depends on it. That's the first conceptual understanding of it's applying towards strikes. If I have a knife and I'm 10 feet away, you have nothing to fear. But by the time I get close to you with a knife, you can then feel the danger. 
Well, that's the same distance without a knife. You should either be moving away or coming in. These are your two choices. Otherwise, you're going to get hit. That's it. Okay. Now I take a knife and I explain to everybody the ancient history that the body has with metal swords and knives that your organs can sense metal. And I tell Diego, this is in the octagon. All the other UFC fighters are watching the whole fucking gym shut down by the way. Like when I was doing this, it was like, um, probably the, the baddest Ted talk you've ever seen, you know? And I then proceed to tell Diego, close your eyes. He closes his eyes and I pull out the knife and I slowly bring it around his body and torso and you can see his organs subtly reacting to the knife. The knife is an inch away from him and his stomach can feel it. Okay. This is, this is moving at uh, 2% speed. I'm not, you know, nothing's happening here. He's just standing there. Right. But he knows to step away. He knows. This is with his fucking eyes closed. Instinctually. Instinctually. That he can now sensitively identify that feeling and work with it. Okay. So I'm showing the room. I'm showing that where I touch him with the knife is the flank of the body of which needs to step back. Does that make sense? If I touch you with the knife on your right side of your body, your right leg needs to step back to basically take the pressure of the knife off of the body. Pretty simple. Okay. If the knife was in the center of the body, you need to move the whole body back. You need to move both feet backwards or to the side. You got to get the fuck out of the way. Now, it doesn't matter if I was pulling out a gun and pointing it at you. It's the same shit. Go talk to Commander Brown. He'll tell you the same shit. Okay, so <clears throat> I give this demonstration. Diego's body is even like hyperly sweating in reaction to it. And he is breathing off the pressure of the internal feelings he's feeling, not seeing because his eyes are out of the equation. Why do we have to take the eyes out of the equation? To prove that your body can interpret the metal to prove that you need to identify this feeling of fear with or without the metal, it's the same feeling and you need to quit denying it because that little moment when you deny it, you're standing there thinking you can just take my strikes. I'm going to hurt you. Mm. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter who you think you are. You're not strong enough to take everybody's strikes. Like something's going to leak through the best decision you can make is move out of the way. So back to combative principles, okay? When it comes to strikes, you only have three options. The first option is move out of the way. This is pretty simple. A bus is coming at you, you get the fuck out of the way, right? You step out of the road. That's because you respect the bus. Now, all of a sudden, it's a bicycle, and it's not moving real fast you might think you can stop it. You can block it. Does this make sense? And you're not having respect for what's coming at you. Yeah. The second option 
is you can move what's coming at you. This would be like a matador making the bull move off the line. The bull is coming directly at you, and then, boom, I make the bull go to the right of me. Okay? A strike is coming at me. You can train the skill to parry the strike and quarter turn your opponent. Now he has to turn his body back. In that millisecond, I have an option to hurt you. Okay? Um, and your third option is you, you just take the strike. You need to master and deal with all three of those positions. You're not going to run away from every strike. You're not going to parry every strike. You're also going to end up accepting some strikes. When you get to the point of being able to accept the strike, you're fully capable of dealing with the fear. Different than just standing there stiff and blocking it. If you hit my body, the energy is going to move through my body. I'm going to take that energy you just gave me with the strike, and I'm going to hit you back faster than you could understand it. So now we're going to take the knife into a fun drill and game. And now they're all in the room, in the, in the octagon, and the game is you can move around, don't touch any of your buddies, don't, don't run into your partners, but when you feel me come at you, move off the line so that you get out of the habit of staying there longer than you should. This ain't the Civil War, man. I'm not asking you to fucking march in the bullets. Right, I see. So... So the reality is, is that you need to be like the native, hit and run, hit and run, you see? Mm. And <clears throat> what's happening now is in the octagon, I line myself up to where they can feel me line them up. And then I start moving in their direction to make them get off the line. The knife only makes it so that they have to respect me and I don't have to hit them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And if you were there for that full thing, you would have been like, Jesus Christ, that was the realest training I've ever had. And I really felt the fear that I feel in the octagon in a real fight, but without the speed or the pressure. I got you. And I was able to make a mistake and not get hurt. So I actually learned some shit versus either getting hurt or not. That's it. Okay, that's what happened there. So again, let's, let's that's talk. something that you think is taken out of one of the many things taken out of context right there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And don't worry, folks, I'm going to put some of all that footage out there for you all to see. But again, on my terms. And I've seen the footage, just to be clear. I've seen some of this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, um, let's talk about the Matt Sarah thing. Let's talk about that. So that's something that, you know, obviously it was something that Matt Sarah. You had approached Matt Sarah during a breakfast in Abu Dhabi for the Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa pay-per-view. It was something that was even posted on Dana White's Looking for a Fight series, right? Which is a fairly largely viewed show that Dana does. And it was something that Matt, that uh, Dean Thomas, who was sitting next to Matt Sarah at the breakfast, was recording without your knowledge, of course. And it's something that sort of, you know, broke the internet, went on YouTube everywhere. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that started? Why did you approach him? I think that's something that a lot of people from the start of yeah. the video might not know why you approached him to begin with. Well, let's go to the facts. You watch the video. There's not one piece of that video out 
without it being controlled or directed, meaning they're not letting you hear the full conversation. They're not showing you unedited footage. They got to roll subtitles and roll over the sound and tell you what's going on. Well, that's interesting because all that's really happening is for a year before this, Diego had um, interviews mandatorily by the UFC. He had to do an interview with Matt Sarah. And this was before the uh, Michelle Piera fight in Albuquerque. And basically, Diego is trying to talk about these things that I'm telling you right now about School of Self. And Matt Sarah isn't hearing it. And he, Diego's saying my name, Diego's saying School of Self, and Matt Sarah just keeps saying, yeah, you're corner man. Yeah, you're corner. So he won't say my fucking name in the interview. So you want to use my fighter for the content. The fighter's trying to give you content. You don't like the content, so now you're shaping it on the, on the show. Well, that's what I have a problem with. I have a problem with you don't want to say coach. You don't want to say my name. You don't want to say what Diego's learning but you want to slander me and use the show to talk shit and belittle me. Did it bother you how heavily promoted that clip was that was recorded during that breakfast? No, man. I think it's, uh, I think it's laughable in my world because the truth is nobody came to save Matt Sarah. Matt Sarah didn't stand up and want to do nothing. And six foot something Dean Thomas didn't do shit, but hold the fucking phone. So I'm, I'm quite aware of who was scared there. I'm quite aware of who got punked out there. And it becomes very aware to me who got punked out when Matt Sarah gets moved to a different hotel and we never see him again. That's the truth of that. But they'd love to have you believe that I got punked out and somehow, yeah, like. At the very least, nobody has heard what you had to say about that. You know, you looked that up. It's all Matt Sarah said this, uh, Mike Swick said this, Dana White said this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where's Joshua Fabia explains what happened at the breakfast? That's something I haven't seen. That's something I think needs to be heard. Or even Diego or Stefan Barr. Yeah, anyone that was there, else. right. Or with anybody you. that was there with my team, mm. right? But again, even some, how come none of the other fighters that were eating? How come none of the other UFC employees that were eating? Was there a lot of people I mean, like, there, like a lot of fighters there that's all that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was probably a good, I don't know, I'd say maybe 30 people, 40 people in the room. Mm. You know, it, it was a big, um, not big, but it's a restaurant inside the W Hotel. So it seems like a lot of funky shit happened at Abu Dhabi, right? Especially during that pay-per-view. Like, is there anything oh, else people don't know about? Like, is there anything else that the UFC, that yeah. you believe that the UFC framed to be on one side of the equation and not the other? Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about Paula Costa. You know, this, this poor guy, I watch after, you know, the event that he's, they're talking about, you know, nobody's talking about how Izzy 
is being wildly inappropriate and not sportsman after the win. Okay? Nobody's talking about that weird back hump and stuff. But instead, it becomes Paula Costa had a poor showing, you know, and uh, trying to dog this fighter. And I'm hearing him defend himself by saying, you know, I drank two bottles of wine to go to sleep. That's something a lot of people have criticized and ridiculed him for. It's a lot. It's on a bunch of fucking memes and all that stuff. Absolutely. And that's the game that the UFC plays to get in the guy's heads. And this is that psychological warfare. So here's Paula Costa drinking two bottles of wine to go to sleep. Nobody's asking, why was it hard to go to sleep? And I'll tell you why. Because the W Hotel is shaped like a curve. On the inside of the curve of the building is a racetrack. In Abu Dhabi, right? In Abu Dhabi, yeah. And, um, you know, from like probably Formula One to supercars to all this crazy stuff does this racetrack. And it's it's for very wealthy people, you know. It's not like Joe Blow is down there on the racetrack. Right, we're in Abu Dhabi, so we're talking to pretty wealthy motherfuckers here. Well, that and during COVID. So there's nobody there. I mean, like... I made the joke before that like fight Island didn't make any tourism money. It was a dead town. The only thing going on there was us. So what happened was all the fighters, you know, we come in a couple days, like almost a week ahead of time, more than a week because everybody had to do quarantine for two days. And then after that, you know, get ready for weigh in and media week and the whole nine. Well, and, and still had to get, you know, COVID tested like almost every day. I mean, it was crazy. Um, so it was quiet. I mean, super quiet, like eerie quiet all over the place because it was just the fighters and the UFC employees and, and that. But after the weigh-in, some people started showing up. And it wasn't uh, a ton of people, but it was, it was, there were some people. I don't know who they are. I mean, I don't remember seeing any big time celebrities or anything, but I'm sure there was, you know, there was some people, but what ends up happening the night before the fight is the fucking racetrack is going till like three o'clock in the morning. And what time does it start at more or less? I think, I think the actual real noise, the noise that you noticed didn't really even start till like maybe 10 o'clock. But it went till three, maybe four o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was insane. And and most people don't understand that the other side of the world, they're on a quite a bit of a different schedule. They stay up a lot later. And after the, the weigh-in, after the weigh-in, this is the night before the fight. Yes. Yeah. And for the you know the, the, that whole time, now there's like a lot of noise, and so you got this hotel that's shaped like a C or a, a half a quarter of a C. Mm-hmm. And what happened was there's a bunch of fighters on the inside of the sea, which is on the side of the track where the track is just blasting into you. Well, that was the side that Diego and I were on. That's the side that all the Brazilians were on. The Brazilians were underneath us. And so 
I can guarantee you Izzy was on the other side of the building. And this is part of the lean. If I don't want you to win, I don't let you get a good night's sleep. I fuck with you guys. And so, like I was telling you in boxing with an A side and a B side, MMA has a similar thing. It's just not so out in the open. You know who's supposed to lose because they do a media campaign two months before shitting on this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you, you see what's happening. Uh, let's talk about Naganu. Remember Naganu and, and Surreal? Right. You know Naganu was supposed to lose. I mean, shit, the UFC knew about his knee injury. They're shitting on him in the media because of his manager having negotiation problems and all types of, oh, he's, he's got bad people around him. Sound familiar? <laughs> so if, if you're willing to fight for your fighter, you're a problem in any way, in any capacity, right? Um, so Naganu was getting the lean on him. He Dana White did not attend the post-fight press conference either after Francis Naganu beat Cyril Gan. No, of course not. Of course not. And do you think but that the, the, the excuse that he made was rightful, or do you think it was just BS? Well, you tell me, boss. Uh, if I have proof, no, no, hold on. If there's a real problem in the back, don't you guys know about it? Don't they tell it to you? When Masvidal's two-piece in a soda, uh, Leon Edwards, behind the scenes, you all know about that, right? The timing of it was a little weird on Dana's end for that Ngannou one, I have to say. It was extremely weird, the timing of him not being able to show up to a post-fight press conference when he showed up to like the, the last like 100 or so, you know? Yeah. I mean, but this is what I'm saying is if there was proof of what he's talking about, that there was a problem backstage or something, you would have known about it. He would have disclosed what that problem is, and there'd be evidence of that problem. There was no problem in that way. So one other thing that I think I really have to talk to you about, and it's something that really does, this actually does bother me, I got to say. Um, and no matter what side people may be on in the equation on this, Diego Sanchez got inducted into the Hall of Fame the night before a fight. And with that comes a lot of interviews, a lot of things you have to do before before you fight the next fucking day, which is something I don't think is fair or something somebody should be doing the night before a fight. What do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, that's, again, that's part of the lean. They do it the night before his fight against Michael Chiesa. Um, let's just talk about some facts, man. It's, it's public knowledge that Diego left Jackson Wink and that he's training with me. Now, I do not, you know, I can use many different facilities as gyms give me the key, but I don't have a gym with 30 bodies to play with. You understand what I mean? I don't, I don't function that way. I don't have a bunch of equipment. I don't play that game. So the UFC is very aware that Diego is training with me, his only coach, his only trainer, that he doesn't have a full team in the way that everybody else has. And Michael Chiesa is getting his training camp at the UFCPI, supported by the UFC. Okay, that's interesting. Did you request to train at the PI? Well, we went to the UFCPI and trained for a week 
And that's how we found out that Kiesa did his whole camp there, that he stayed in an Airbnb there, that he didn't stay in the hotel the night before the fight like Diego. And where did we stay? Where did they put us in? New York, New York. So Diego's got to walk by all the fans and play the game and get all his energy drawn out of him. Isn't that interesting? So now we go to do the fight. You know I'm the only trainer. You're supporting Kiesa 150%. The, the UFCPI didn't offer to train Diego. Didn't offer to support Diego. Nothing. Cold as ice. And um, A UFC legend, mind you. Kiesa's no legend, UFC at legend. least not yet. Yeah. Who's, who's saying that he has no team and he, he, he was not getting treated good by Jackson Wink. And I mean, the story is all out there. Not one call from Forrest Griffin or anybody at the UFC PI saying, Hey man, we got you. Come on over here. We'll, we'll take care of you. We'll put everybody on it. Don't worry. That was never an offer. So we go and, uh, yeah, Diego has, you know, the regular media week, which is insane it, on top in and of, of itself. That's just insane. Beside from the hall of fame stuff. Right now, the big difference is I don't believe in weight cutting. So I, during the camp progressively get you down to weight and a little bit below during fight week so that you can actually eat and drink water and feel good during fight week so that you're coherent to do all these media engagements. And you're not irritable and maybe say something that could hurt your legacy or your reputation, right? So we go do all that, and then he does the weigh-in, the official weigh-in. Or first we do the morning weigh-in. That's something that people don't understand. You do a morning weigh-in, that's when you make weight, that's when you can go to the official weigh-in. So we went, when we went to go weigh-in, Masvidal, Askren, three, four other guys, they're laying on the ground, dying, just wanting to get weighed in. Because Diego's already on weight, I already have him scheduled to weigh in first. The first to weigh in, done. You go to medicals, you get cleared, fight's on. Okay, so then we go from there. I think we had like a few hours. I got to feed him, you know, um, I think you got to take a small nap. And then four o'clock, we got to be back at the Coliseum at the uh, mobile arena for the official weigh-in. Well, if the official weigh-in's at four, we got to be there at like three thirty, you know? And, uh, so we get over there, we do the official weigh-in and then literally go back to the hotel, change, don't have time for food and got to go now to the hall of fame ceremony that goes on till like, I think about 1130 is about the time we left out of there. Might've been almost 12. Wow. By the time we leave there. Crazy. The night before. Then I got to feed him. Yeah. Then I got to feed him. He's high on the uh, adrenaline of giving a speech and all his peers and everything, but he didn't get to enjoy it. He didn't get to go out. He didn't get to go with all the other guys. He had to go to the hotel room 
and try to get his mind right for a fight the next day. That just makes the you know? scheduling on that makes no sense. Like you, you couldn't wait. Like it had to be the 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 night before a fight specifically. You couldn't book him for another date or whatever. It's it's ridiculous. Well, and that's specific. That's specific, man. So I mean, the play is what get Diego his ass kicked so that we can retire him and it all makes sense. That's what the play of the UFC was. That's why all the odds are against him. This is all it was. I mean, you got to see that the UFC has been trying to get rid of Diego well before I came around. And the old rule was lose two and you're out. And Diego was always losing one, losing two. I mean, uh, I mean, lose three and you're out. And he would never lose three in a row. And because he kept um, getting back in the win column, they didn't have a proper good reason to cut him, like a legitimate, you know? And so they've been just trying to set it up. And the best way to do that is you get finished. You get hurt bad. And this has been the setup, uh, fight after fight. I mean, just look at what happened after Chiesa. Diego fought nothing but 23 and 24-year-olds. We're talking 13-year difference. Guys with four to five-inch reach difference. Pereira, Jake Matthews. Yeah. I mean, uh, Chiesa's, I don't know how old Chiesa is. Chiesa was far bigger than him. If you talk about that fight also, yeah, Chiesa was a lot longer, a lot bigger. Chiesa was, uh, Chiesa's a big welterweight. I don't know how the guy ever made 155. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no, no. So, I mean, this is just the situation that I was dealing with. And this is why nobody would give me credit for anything that I did when Diego was supposed to get finished and hurt and, and, and booted out of there, you know, regardless, they just wanted to use me as the escape go to, well, that's the reason must be that guy. Not, not that you're not giving him fair competition. Diego didn't get to fight Pettis. He didn't get to fight Maya. And we had those fights lined up with those fighters. And somehow, some way, the UFC just wouldn't let it happen. So the so you so, guys had a had agreed so you guys had outside of the contract agreements, you guys had agreed to a fight with the likes of Maya, Damian Maya, and Diego was on board, Damian Maya was on board, and the UFC just didn't yeah. want it to happen. Absolutely. So I Absolutely. think yeah. Pettis also, I mean, you know, and that that those would have been fights where you would have been able to see the things that that I'm training Diego, you would have been able to see them more. They would have been more evident. Not mismatches. It's hard hard to see how much he's learning and what he's capable of doing when the size disadvantage and he's going to look slow compared to a young 20 year old buck. I mean, it just is man. And you know, again, nobody's given me any credit or love for I'm working with a junkyard dog, man. I'm not working with a 20-year-old that hasn't gone to these wars. No, man. I'm, I'm dealing with a guy that's been through the ringer several times. And if you don't believe me, go roll back the time and go look at, a, at when he fought BJ Penn. Go look at what happened to him since then. Go look at the, the fights in the 10 years after that. How come nobody talks about the Mickey Gall fight? How come nobody wants to give me credit for getting Diego performance of the night 
that's $50,000 bonus. And that was your first win, fight, right, under Diego Sanchez? Yeah. Yeah. A win, which doubles his money, which was 100000 So that means that I started coaching you. You made an extra 150000 and you had the best performance you've had in 10 years. So your first fight with Diego Sanchez in his corner, you defeat you guys defeated Mickey Galvey around 2 TKO March 2nd, 2019, right in Vegas? Yeah, but you got one part of that wrong. I wasn't allowed to be in the corner because Jackson Wink wouldn't let me. Diego wanted me in the corner. They said no. So the first fight where you cornered him was a Kiesa fight? Yes. But the first fight where you got into touch with Diego, where you had at least some sort of relationship, some mentorship to Diego, was before the Mickey Gall fight, not the Michael Kiesa fight. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't know. Yeah, of course. Of course, he said it. Diego said it in the MMA Junkie interviews. He said it several times. Mm -hmm. Nobody's taking that cut and replaying that 50 million times. Instead... You got pieces of footage out of context slandering my training style. You see? So, I mean, of course, people are going to be confused. Of course. And you were there the night that you were there the night that Diego, you weren't in his corner, but you were there the night that Diego Sanchez fought Mickey Gall, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I was the one that was celebrating with him after and had to, you know. And were you able to reach him anyway before the fight? Were you able to reach him in any way before the fight? Give him any advice, regardless of the yeah, American was, top I, team I was, stuff? Yeah, yeah. I worked on him in his hotel room before he went to the arena. I was the last thing that was working with him. Mm. I see. So, yeah. again, this is a string of many things that are just incomplete. Whether people agree with you, whether people don't agree with you, you got to have two sides of the story. You know, you, there has to be two sides of the story. You can't have one guy being bashed and one side of the story being told and this whole other side being blank. And I think this is something that is necessary for people to hear because they got to hear it. You know, they got to get the full truth of it. So I, I thank you for sharing that. And again, man, just I think it's good for people to hear, you know? Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about School of Self and the podcast that's available. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where can people find you, talk about the podcast, yeah. all that stuff? Yeah, so... Basically, we have a membership, an online membership available to anybody and everybody around the world. Uh, it's on, on sale right now, 90% off. You go to schoolofselfawarenessworldwide.com, and uh, it's $111.11 for the month of April. It's normally $999.99. So it's 90% off right now. Make sure that you take advantage of that. Um, it's over 400 pieces of content and teachable, educational, and entertaining material covering everything that I told you, giving you the school of self-breathing method to handle anxiety and depression, the school of self-movement method, which gives you the full awakening and full capabilities of the human body, allowing you to do any sport or anything that you want to do. I mean, it's not limited or specific to MMA. It's, it's for anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody, if you breathe, you can benefit from this. And then you have all the uh, health and healing, which is covering self-massage and, and self-care. A lot of people uh, trip out on my hair. You got hair care in there. You got foot care. 
how to take care of these parts of your body that are being overlooked. And then we have a meditation course that has, you know, signature school of self meditations that are specific to teaching you how to meditate and understand how to keep that meditative state. And then, um, you know, words of wisdom, things that people are not thinking about and much, much more. I mean, honestly, that's like skimming the surface of the membership. Uh, well worth your time, energy, and money. And to be honest with you, I mean, that's for a year-long membership. So it's $111.11 for a year. It's like 30 cents a day. Not one month, now, you, a year. A year. A year long of membership. If you can't invest 30 cents a day, but I see your ass at Starbucks, we'll know why you're not living the life you want to live. That's on you. If you can't invest in yourself, as, as cheap as I'm making it, as affordable as I'm making it, if you pass that up, that's on you. Because I'm telling you right now, anybody else to work with me, anybody else to take to get any of this information, it costs you a lot of time, energy, and money. So instead of making you pay for gas, instead of taking you away from your house, I'm putting it in your pocket, on your TV, on your computer, wherever you're at, you can access this. So that's the membership. And some people just kind of, you know, they want some insight. They want some positivity. They want to think about things that people aren't thinking about. Well, that's the podcast. And the podcast is available on iTunes and Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon. And the name of the podcast is Thoughts Worth Having. And if you don't have to take my word for it. Go experience it yourself. And, uh, and then you make your own judgment. You think I'm an asshole after you see and listen and understand what I do, then maybe I'm an asshole. But if you're not willing to do that, um, I don't know if your opinion really matters at this point. You see? Mm. So I'm putting it all out there. It's uh, my life's work. Over 20 years of a career of helping thousands of people around the world, including law enforcement and military. And again, if law enforcement and military around the world can see value in what I'm teaching, I can't see how you couldn't. Give it a shot, you know, and see what happens. And I can almost guarantee you, you will have a higher quality of life. You will have higher enhancement of what you can do in your life. And it's going to change your life for the better. And that's, that's it. You know, if, if you're willing to sit here and listen to this conversation at all, you should go check it out. It would be a disservice to yourself. And so, you know, I have people that want to work with me. I don't have all the time. So I've taken all this material and content and put it online in a digestible manner so that you can Get it how you want it. If you just want the movements because you just want to get your body in shape, you can just do that. If you want just the self-care, if you want just this, whatever you want, 
But if you want the whole shebang, it's all there too. And it's a year's worth of material. And the catalog is continuously growing. I'm uploading three more pieces of content today. You know, on the uh, podcast, we have episodes coming out every Wednesday and every Sunday. Please check it out. And on that note, uh, I think it's time to wrap up. Thank you so much, Joshua Fabia, for joining me, my man. Um, Two things that I took out of this, I think it was important for you, number one, to fill in the blanks, and number one, for you to just tell people who the hell you are. So two things accomplished today. Thank you so much for joining me, and uh, yeah, have a good one. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy.